0: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. In the early 1940s, Aileen Griffith was a young woman working as a model in New York at one of Manhattan's most prestigious agencies, but she was desperate to join America's war effort. Soon, a twist of fate would see her posted to Spain at the height of World War II as part of the US Office of Strategic Services, where she would mingle with everyone from famous bullfighters, the rock stars of the day, to the highest rungs of the Spanish aristocracy. In today's episode, you'll be hearing from Larry Loftis, the author of a new book, The Princess Spy, which tells Aileen's story. Putting the question to Larry was our acting digital editor, Eleanor Evans. Your book is The Princess Spy, which covers the story of
3: Aileen Griffith, who is a fascinating, fascinating character. And I wanted to start by asking, how did you come to Aileen's story?
4: Typically, I find stories uh, while I'm researching other stories. I mean, I'm researching books about a spy or about something that happened during the war, and then I stumble across another name. This one, someone had mentioned to me, uh, with the caveat, "Hey, I don't know if any of this is true, but there's a lot here. If half of it's true, it'd be a great. It'd be a great book." So uh, that's where I started with this one. And of course, I had to do all the research to to find out what happened and what didn't happen and all the, all the details.
3: Okay. Well, if I can pick up on that point of research, then we know from having talked about spies and espionage on this podcast before that it can often be tricky to dig out these stories. How did that factor play a part in how you found out about Aileen?
4: Well, with, with most of, well, really with all, all of the, the three spy books that I've done into the lion's mouth was about an MI6 agent who's go pop off operating in Portugal Second was codename Lease, an SOE agent operating in France, and then Eileen Griffith, OSS agent operating in Spain. And so the, the, the best primary source is the archives, because the archives, each agency has their own archives. Uh, these people submit reports, case officers submit reports, the agents submit reports, and that's at the time that they actually did it. So it's the most reliable. So that's the best place. So for Aileen, uh, so I'm either the UK Archives at Q, or I'm at the National U.S. National Archives in College Park, Maryland, called National Archives II. So those are the two places that I do uh, the best primary research. And then, of course, books that have been written on, written on the topic, I have to read those, of course. So with Aileen, she wrote a number of books, um, Two were, two were straight nonfiction, one was straight fiction, um, the nonfiction, the history of Pasqualette, which she had written about 24 years before she wrote her first spy memoir, and then the end of an epic, which she wrote kind of near the end of her life, and then she did a nonfiction article for the National Archives, for the U.S. National Archives here. Uh, it was an OSS, basically a compilation of OSS people who had been in different areas and her article was about Spain. So those, those were the three nonfiction and then her, and then Elaine wrote three memoirs, which fall in between. They were written as memoirs, but they were historical fiction. I mean, that the, the overarching picture was absolutely true. She was a spy. She was a very good spy operating in Spain. Um, but she made up a lot of stuff. She made up. Between the three books, there are nine murders or killings, and she made up eight of them. The uh, the other one, the ninth one, I I know happened because I found the person actually. All the all the players are dead, of course, but I found the two sons of her, of Aileen's coding partner in the coding room in, in Madrid. Robert Dunev was this man's name, and uh, he's the one that actually removed the body from from the one that was true. So. I found that out because the sons had said, Hey, our dad wrote this memoir. It's about a hundred pages. It was never published. It wasn't for publication. It was just for us, just for the family. Do you want to see it? So I said, sure, absolutely. Uh, and it was great. I mean, it was his detail about what he did during the war. And, you know, I jumped when one I'm reading on one page and it says, which reminds me of the night that I removed the body from Eileen's apartment. So, um, so that one was true. The others, she 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 made up. So um, my job is is to find out what really happened, and the main place that, that I get that information is in the um, is in the archives.
3: Yeah, there's a huge amount of evidence to sift through there, and it, it makes for a really compelling account. And I, I wondered if we could give a bit more context to the early stages of Aileen's story, uh, and talk about how she got recruited by this service, the OSS.
4: Sure. She had just, Aileen had just graduated from college. She was from a small town, a little hamlet outside of New York City called Pearl River. It's one of those like one stop sign, one post office, one grocery, one school. She goes to the same school, all 12 years of school. Um, And so after the war, she's looking for something to do. Her brothers had joined the war and she wanted to join the war, but What's she going to do? She's a, she's a young girl. She just graduated from, job, from college. She doesn't have any job skills yet. So she takes a job in Manhattan uh, as a model. She's very beautiful. She was 5'9 and beautiful. And so she took a job with Hattie Carnegie, which was the top, probably the top modeling agency in the country at the time. And Lucille Ball, for example, had started there. Uh, and so Elaine starts working there and it's you, you would think it's a dream job. She's well paid. She gets all the best clothes in the world. She gets to hobnob with 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 exciting people. Uh, she's in the spotlight. She's in magazines. But that, that's not really what she wanted to do. So what happens is she goes to a dinner party. She's invited to a dinner party uh, and she has a blind date. And the blind date happens to be, lo and behold, she doesn't know this, but a man named Frank Ryan. Well, Frank Ryan was the OSS person in charge of the Iberian Peninsula, so all of Spain, all of Portugal. And so when they're talking, he says, oh, so do you want to be a famous model? And she goes, oh, no, I don't, I, I don't really like modeling. I, I want to get into the war. I want to help the war effort. He's like, really? Well, Why? Well, my brothers are in the war, and and I want to do something, too. I don't, you know, I'm a woman. I don't know what I could do, but I want to do something to help. And he says, well, so basically, he starts interviewing her. You know, she has no idea who he is. So he says, well, Elaine, do you speak any foreign languages? And she says, well, I'm pretty fluent in Spanish, and I've got a working knowledge of French. And, of course, his ears perk up when she says, I'm fluent in Spanish because he needs Spanish agents. So when she says that, he continues to interview her through the evening. And then at the end of dinner, he says, well, look, if, if a gentleman by the name of Tomlinson calls you, uh, you'll know what it's about. He might be able to help you to, quote, unquote, find something to do in the war. Well, that find something to do, of course, is with the OSS, because a Tomlinson does call. I'm sure that's not his real name it was an alias. He tells her to meet, meet me at the Biltmore Hotel tomorrow at six o'clock uh i'll be wearing a white carnation on my you know very like james bondish i'll be wearing a white carnation and so he meets her and and talks to her and basically continues to interview her and while well, they send her off they send her off to this place called the farm which was a 100 acre complex outside of dc where the oss trained their operatives uh, it's a three-week program. Now, when she arrives, she doesn't know yet what she's doing. It's just "quote unquote" something for the war. And then when she gets there, she finds out this is where this is where the Americans are grooming spies, and she's going to be groomed to be a spy to work in Spain. So it's a very intensive three-week program. In fact, I I pulled out this is the schedule. This is the first week of the schedule that she has. And I've highlighted a number of things, weapons, co- close combat, organizing chains, weapons again. But down here at the bottom, my favorite one. So Aileen, through these classes, through three weeks, every day she's on the firing range. She shoots every gun, handguns, pistols, uh, Mausers, uh, you name it, Lugers. Uh, and then she upgrades now to the rifles. So she's shooting all the carbines and, and, and the rifles, and then she goes to the machine guns. So she's practicing on on a German MG42, a U.S. Tommy gun. So she uses all of the guns. And then, as I just showed you, she has to learn knife fighting by the man who invented the most famous knife ever invented called the Fairbairn Sykes fighting knife, used by special forces still today around the world. So he teaches her how to fire all the guns, how how to handle a knife, how to kill people with a knife. And then his specialty was the art of the silent kill, which I detail in Into the Lion's Mouth. But he taught his operatives how to kill with their bare hands. So she learned that as well. So all of that is sort of her training to get her ready to go to Spain. Even though it's a neutral country, there was potential danger. And and the OSS and the SOE and and MI6 trained all of their spies with this practical, with weapons, with hand-to-hand fighting and knives and so forth. So that's her training before she goes to Spain. Yes, it's
3: certainly intensive. And I love reading about that baptism of fire that she goes through. Can we talk a little bit more about Spain and the situation that she finds herself posted to? You mentioned it was a neutral country. Right. What, what makes Spain and particularly Madrid this, this hotbed that Aileen finds herself in?
4: in during World War II, there are only four neutral countries. And those four countries are Portugal, Spain... Turkey, and Sweden. That's it. Of the four, Spain uh, Spain and Portugal were the most important, and the most important cities were Madrid and Lisbon. And of the two, Madrid was the most important. For a number of reasons, that's where the Germans had their largest contingent, uh, and that's where information, when it came across France, had to go through Spain before it went anyplace else. So people that are sneaking across the Pyrenees in the French Resistance or SOE operatives. When they come across the Pyrenees, they've got to secretly make it to Madrid so that the Americans can hide them, put them in the the back the trunk of a of a car with diplomatic plates, and take them to Gibraltar if they want to fly them out. So that that, uh, so Madrid is the hub for everybody. So every country had spies there. Uh, Popoff's case officer, when he was in Portugal, was a German Abwar agent by the name of Johann, Johann Jepsen. And Jepsen told him, by the way, when we go to Madrid, because they went to Madrid several times, when we go to Madrid, we're going to go to this place called Horcher's. It's a German restaurant owned by Germans. Uh, they're on the vases. You got to be careful what you say, because on the vases, they have secret microphones hidden and they're recording. Uh, so he was told this. The papa was told this. And this is in a in, in a neutral country, at this restaurant, but it's the nicest restaurant in town. It's a famous restaurant, still there today. Uh, and they went to an Aileen went to another German restaurant as well called Edelweiss. So she's go, so even though it's a neutral country, the place is swarming with spies. And Jepsen had told Popov, "Look, uh, there are about four hundred and twenty German agents or informants here, just in Madrid. So you have to be careful." It could be a bellman, it could be a porter, it could be a bartender, it could be anybody. So you have to be careful what you say and who you say it around. So that's the that that's sort of the scenario that she walks into, and and there's a, a kind of a sinister looking German who's sort of the most powerful there at the time, named Hans Lazar, who the OSS had a big file on. Lazar was their ostensibly their 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 press agent, their press secretary. But he was very active in, in espionage because he had himself uh, at, at one time, I think, uh, like 100 sub-agents that worked for him, either to collect information or, to, uh, or as informants. And the Germans had set up about 3,000 fake companies in Spain and in particularly in Madrid to help the espionage effort. So all this is stuff is going on. So it, when when something happens in France or anywhere in Europe, it's cable. You know, the Germans cable it to Madrid. The Americans cable it to Madrid. The British cable it to Madrid. And, of course, each each country has their own radio and, and, and their code. So Aileen is sent for this purpose. Aileen is sent to Madrid as a coder. And so what that means, uh, she's in this room mainly with Robert Dunev. There are other coders coming later, but mainly it's her and Robert Dunev. So when a message comes in from the French resistance that says, hey, we just saw 20 panzer tanks here. We, we just saw five German cruisers, battleships, whatever, here. Uh, we just saw troop movements here. They would they would cable that to Madrid, and then Elaine would have to um, collect the information. It's all in code, so she has to decode it to figure out what it says. And then she has to recode it to send it out to whoever's supposed to get it. So, you know, using the examples I gave you, you know, it might be a, a cable that would eventually go out to Montgomery or to Patton to attack, you know, the, the Panzers that they found or, or the RAF's going to make a bombing run over what they found. So it was very important information. It, it needed to be very timely. So Elaine and Robert were on call. One of them would be on call through the night. So at 3 o'clock in the morning, they might get a phone call, got a cable. So they have to go in at three o'clock in the morning, decode it, recode it, send it out, you know, go to the State Department, go to the various places. So it was a non-it was kind of an intense nonstop job because they had, they coded during the day, and then they were on call. One of them was on call every night for for decoding what could possibly come in. And after she's there about a year, the OS, her bosses figure out, hey, she's very talented. She could probably do more than just coding, and so they doubled up on on what she could do. They actually also made her a field agent. The you know she went in as a as a person that's going to work in a little room and just code and decode all day, but they sort of upgraded her to also be a field agent, like a James Bond, where you go out. And you collect information from people, places, you go to parties, you go to diplomat parties. You, she would she would go to the parties of this uh, gentleman that I mentioned, Prince uh, von Hohenloh, uh, to collect information. Is this person a Nazi? Is this person a collaborator? Is this person a German operative? Uh, so she's called to do now. She doesn't give up her day job, which is as a coder. And she's still on call at night. So on the weekends and on the nights when she's not on call, she's out going to stuff. She's going to parties. She's going to dinners. Uh, They paired her with this very whimsical, almost Don Quixote-like character named um, Edmundo LaSalle. And so he would go out with her. And it would look so that it would look normal because when you go to dinner, typically you go as a couple. So she would go with Edmundo LaSalle and it looks like a couple having dinner. Well, he's an OSHS agent as well. His cover was as um, he worked and he really did work for them for Walt Disney Company. Uh, He was a, he was a Disney employee and had a Disney contract. Lo and behold, what, you know, anyone else cannot see is that the OSS had a secret deal with Disney and they, they reimbursed Disney under the table to repay what Disney was paying to Edmundo. but they wanted real work, even though he was uh, the full-time Operative, They wanted real work for him um, as, a, um, as a Spanish, uh, the, basically their liaison for getting films into Spain and Portugal. So anyway, so those are her Eileen's two jobs, uh, the, the actual coding and then the going out as a field agent with Edmundo Losau, or sometimes on her own. She would go to bullfights. She, she met these famous bullfighters who were a great source of information, could open any door. So that she did all of that.
3: Yes, I did want to talk about some of these particular relationships because I think Juanita Belmonte is one of the more larger-than-life characters in this account, and is it fair to say that she really pushed the buttons of this relationship?
4: She really did, but she was she was caught in a hard place because Juanita Belmonte was a rock star. I mean, if you're in the U.S. and you say, hey, I've, I've got the chance to go to dinner with Tom Cruise, you know? I mean, if the person is a celebrity they can open a lot of doors you you never have to wait in line for anything you get the best tickets you can meet anybody that you want so Juanito was a famous bullfighter his dad his father in fact was maybe the greatest probably the greatest bullfighter ever there was really only three in that in that conversation and it was Juan Belmonte his father uh, a bullfighter that uh, that Hemingway wrote about quite a bit Lito, and then later the third one is in, in Aileen's day, and Aileen meets and becomes friends with him, this bullfighter named Manolito. But so those were the three greatest in history. But Juan Belmonte, Juanito's father, was really famous because he's the one that introduced the modern day bullfighting, where you stand close to the bull, you make the bull work around you. You have to be, you have to look like a ballerina. I mean, you have to look like a ballerina, show no fear, be totally calm, and and be graceful. Whereas before him, everything they would jump out of the way, they were running around the ring. You know, it was a mad, it was a madman circle. But uh Juanito changed all that. So he became the father of bullfighting. So Juanito, his son, Juan's son, uh is famous. So dad retires, so Juanito's now the active. He's a rock star and a lean. He he, smitten, he meets Aileen, he's smitten by her immediately. He's sending her flowers, he's sending her chocolates. He wants her to go out on a chocolate date where they go to this famous chocolatier uh, so she can get the best chocolates in the world. And he's really just smitten by her. She's not smitten by him. I mean, number one, she's probably about seven inches taller than he is. But um, she isn't really smitten by him. She, she, they become good friends. He, of course, I think falls in love with her and she doesn't want to hurt him, and she really kind of needs him to open doors and to go to things and to meet people. So she tries to balance those two without leading him on romantically, but yet going out with him whenever he says, hey, let's go to dinner, let's go to lunch, let's go to a bullfight, let's go to whatever. So she would go with him and just try to keep those. Eventually, he got the message. Eventually, he got the message that she's not romantically involved in him but through the story of the, through uh, through the story of the princess by there's actually four suitors and so there. while she's doing all this espionage you have this romance undercurrent going on with four different men first is Juanita who she has zero interest in then there's um, a, a, a mysterious character named Pierre who is d- comes and goes an OSS agent disappears he had trained with her at the farm. And then he shows up in Madrid. They had kind of, she was smitten with him, he was smitten with her, but he was mysterious. She wasn't even sure she could trust him. Um, he ends up disappearing, probably going to France. And then the third one is maybe the most, the, the coolest character in the story is an American diplomat named Barnaby Conrad, who was the youngest diplomat ever. He's only 21 when he was sent to Seville as a vice consul. And so he's a diplomat. He had been trained. Little did Aileen know, he had been trained as a coder as well in Washington. But so he's a diplomat. Uh, and and decides he had kind of started this right before he went to the to Spain. He wanted to be a bullfighter too. So he starts training as a bullfighter and becomes a bullfighter. And he comes into the picture because Aileen's arrested. Eileen goes on, she has a mission. She's supposed to take some, some uh secret information. Uh, I think it was on Microfish to uh, this other person. They're going to meet in the back of a church. They've got these codes. He's going to show up on you know the back pew. You need to slip him this information. This is people. This is from the French resistance. Basically, lives are at stake because the French resistance had to have a chain of safe houses and safe people so that you could go from wherever, Paris, all the way to Madrid. And you they needed safe houses all the way through that. And there's... There's, I mean, I saw the files of just the chains, what were called chains, of people and houses, and there were thousands, thousands of names. Um, so Aileen's information that she's carrying is very important. And when she's on the train, uh, a policeman knocks on her door, passport, please, okay, uh, now your permit, your travel permit, what permit, I don't have a permit. Uh, she had been warned of this. They thought she could probably get by because of her age, but she didn't get by because of her age. So she's arrested. She's arrested, and they lock her up in jail in, in Malaga. And uh, she's missing the appointment to deliver this very important information. And the clock's ticking. You know, they had three different drop dates in case something happened. The first one goes by, the second goes by, and she's looking at her watch. Anyway, the guy that has to vouch for her is this American vice consul, Barnaby Conrad. So he shows up to sort of bail her out of jail. Well, it finds out, my gosh, it's a beautiful, Elaine was about 22 at the time, 23, gorgeous, You know, a, had been a professional model. So he's smitten by her. So he invites her immediately to go to lunch with him and then dinner. So he's in the mix now, if you will, in the romantic hunt. But the man that she falls in love with and eventually marries is a man by the name of Luis Figueroa, who, lo and behold, she has no idea, but is famous, and his family's famous. The, he, he uh, at the time, um, was the uh, was the count of Quintanilla, and he becomes the count of Romanones, which was a very famous name, uh, and still is today. And the the Luis's grandfather was the current count of Romanones, and when he died, it would pass to his father, and then to Luis. But he had been the prime minister of Spain three times. He was King Alfonso's principal advisor, very famous man and a beloved family. So Eileen doesn't know this. And they were also extremely wealthy. Eileen doesn't know this. She just knows this is a handsome guy. He's polite. He's sharp. He he speaks perfect English. She didn't think that he was Spanish. He had like, like brown hair, green eyes, and perfect English. So she didn't think that he was Spanish, and she wasn't sure. And they met kind of in a very ominous way. And I won't spoil. I won't throw out the spoiler here. But in the book, you'll see that they they meet in an ominous way, and she has no idea who this particular man is, and she's kind of scared of him. But anyway, that so that's the love story that does develop and works its way through as the as the espionage sort of tails off, the romance picks up, and they sort of cross.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
4: She was a very good agent. In fact, she filed more reports in Madrid than any other Madrid agent. She filed 59 and she did it in the span of about six months, which was means she was very busy every single day, night, day.
2: We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down
1: Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
3: I also wanted to ask about her work that she conducted mixing in these circles as a spy. Right. Can the success of her work be quantified in any way? Are we able to say how successful she was at all?
4: Right. It's It's virtually... Impossible to quantify uh, the the work of a spy, uh, and, and to say, well, you know, this helped the war and that helped the war, because they're doing their part. I mean, there's there's a you're a machine gunner on a on a ship, you know, you're doing your part for that particular job. Uh, with the exception of Popoff, who was bigger than life. I mean, he had more subagents than anybody. He accomplished more than anybody. He warned the US about the Pearl Harbor attack in August of 41. He was the primary guy to deceive the Germans about the Normandy invasion, convinced them that it was coming at Pas de Calais, uh, which saved countless thousands of lives. So so that you can quantify, because you know that he was the main guy that deceived them, and that surely saved a couple of thousand lives. With all other spies, you can't really say, well, they saved this amount of lives, or they accomplished uh, this particular thing, but they all did their part. Elaine did it. She was a very good agent. In fact, she filed more reports in Madrid than any other Madrid agent. She filed 59 and she did it in the span of about six months, which was means she was very busy every single day, night, day. So she filed all of these reports uh, and each report, you know, does something else. It notifies the OSS. This person, I think, is a spy. This person is is an informant. I've hired two sub agents. Aileen hired two sub agents to work under her, uh, and there were a couple more that were coming before they closed the office down. Uh, Flamenco was one, and 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 they paid her uh, because it was dangerous, and so she's responsible now for her a couple of her own sub agents. Um, And then eventually, the U.S. puts her on a a very important task with Edmundo LaSalle, and it was a project called Safe Haven. Safe Haven was the code name for a critical operation to catch German money and people coming through the pipeline. So what happens towards the end of the war, Germany knows they're going to lose the war. Uh, The Nazis know. So what they try to do is, number one, get the loot out, all the loot that they stole the money, the paintings, the, the priceless things. They want to try to sneak that out and get it through Spain to, on a ship to go to Argentina, primarily. Uh, likewise, there are a number of war criminals, you know, these <laughs> Nazi war criminals that know if I get caught, they're going to hang me. So all those uh, Germans are trying to get out. Well, safe haven was to catch them, to, to catch the people, to catch the art, to to, to to catch the money, to find out where the money's going. And they had a feeling that there were agents, conduits. They, the X2 office felt that Hohenloh was probably the conduit to get some of this money from Madrid to Mexico uh, because he had contacts. He had two homes in Mexico and he had significant contacts in Mexico. So as part of safe haven they send her to this yes this massive finca, this it's like a castle um and and it's this huge party And so they send a there to find out if there are any mexicans there because they're really thinking he's getting this money out of spain into mexico and we've got to trap it we've got to stop it and so she's there to look for mexicans and so she does a report there weren't you know there's maybe 150 people there she says there weren't any mexicans however in his office, so she just kind of snoops around the house. She says, "Around the house, I found multiple pictures of him with Mexican bullfighters." So they knew that he had a strong connection to Mexico. So anyway, so she goes out all the time, files these reports, uh, and is a very good agent. Every agent had their own little thing to do. Uh, Edmundo Lasalle uh, operated in, in, in Barcelona for a while, then worked with Aileen in Madrid. They together worked on Operation um, Safe Haven. Uh, Robert Dunev had an alias. He had his own separate identity as a Spaniard where he was supposed to do stuff on the side. So they all had these little projects and things that they all were supposed to do. But of all of the agents, because I had to go through every single file you know, in the National Archives, I, I was astounded to see that Aileen had 59 reports, which is not only more than anybody else, probably more than all the others combined. I mean, it was a lot.
3: Right, and it's clearly very vital work, and it seems like she was prolific. But but then if we go to her after the war, and going back to what you mentioned about her own writing, it's clearly a world that was already filled with glamour and twists and turns. So what happens there with her own writing?
4: Well, l- let's back up and talk about what what actually happened after the war, because that's a whole other... I mean, that could almost be its own book. I mean, I covered in The Princess By, but... Sure. Th- there's there's a whole other very secretive very important operation when when roosevelt dies president truman becomes our the us president and truman does not like foreign intelligence he doesn't like the oss so at the when the war in europe ends he tells the oss you guys have to close down i, I don't think it's important for us to have foreign intelligence so the madrid office has an order to close the office by August 15, 1945, that means everybody's out of the office. Everybody goes home, and so they did that. So they closed the 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 office. The OSS people, though, knew that was absolutely crazy. You can't close down your espionage service. You can't cl- can't close down your intelligence service. And so, the three top espionage people in Western Allies decided to do something. And those three people were. William Donovan, General William Donovan, who was head of the OSS, William Stevenson, who was head of the BSC, the British Security Coordination, which is MI6 operating in the U.S. and Canada, and then the SOE chief, Charles Hambro, on the British side. Those were the three top espionage uh, organizations, if you will, not including uh, Stuart Menzies at MI6, but those three decided we we need to do something. So a corporation is secret right after, like, like three weeks after the OSS closes the office in August. So in September, there is this company formed in Panama. I can tell you as a former corporate lawyer that the only reason that you would incorporate in Panama is to hide it, which they did. It was headquartered in New York City, incorporated in Panama. So that company was called the British American Canadian Corporation. Canadian is Stevenson, uh, British is Hambro, and American is Donovan. So it was named after basically the three founders from these espionage services. And then they started hiring other people, all from the intelligence community. For example, the person that they picked to run the company is actually Elaine's boss. I mean, the guy who recruited her, Frank Ryan, that's who they tapped. To run this thing, who had been the OSS in charge of the Iberian Peninsula. And then they bring in for different offices, they they bring in, uh, and this is all done on the slide. This this entity was to assist trade. That that was the it was the cover, uh, and but they actually did it. I mean, in, in all good covers, you actually do the business that your cover is. So the cover was international trade. What I point out in the book is. Ironically enough, all of the people involved in the company, all of the founders, all of the people on the board, not one of them has anything experience in international trade, none. So uh, so you've got all those founders, the Mellon family, i.e. from Larry Mellon, who worked in the Madrid office with Aileen. The Mellon family is one of the financial backers of this entity. They tap other people. And in, in, in my book on Popov, he talks about an MI6 agent that flew with him when he went to the U.S., that MI6 agent's name was John Pepper. Oh, John Pepper's on the board of this of this new entity. So they bring in all of these people. And after the war, Frank Ryan says to Aileen privately, oh, by the way, you know we have to close the office, but uh, we're going to form a new organization. He doesn't say who we are. We're going to form a new organization. And we want you to be a part of it. You're very important. We want you to help. And in fact, you're going to open the Madrid office. She's already in Madrid. So she opens the Madrid office for this mysterious company and has to do real work. She has to do real trade there with, with cotton dealers and so forth. Um, and then he sends her after that, he sends her to open, help open the office in Paris. And from Paris, she's supposed to help open the office in Zurich. Uh, meanwhile, other SOA, former OSS agents are opening offices in other places. So all of this is happening while her romance is accelerating with Luis. so you've got this tension she keeps getting more important uh work from her boss frank ryan and and is literally in charge of opening uh the madrid office and opening the zurich office by herself so this very important work meanwhile she's in love with louise and they want to get married so you have this tension where she kind of wants to leave she can't tell uh, Luis, that, that she works, you know, she's a spy. She's been a spy. and well, Wow, works for this new entity. Uh, and so he wants her just to come back to Spain and stay in Spain. But he hasn't proposed. And so she's like, look, I've got no commitment. I've got no ring, no, no engagement. So she won't give up her quote-unquote day job. And so you, this tension builds. She can't tell him that she's a spy. She can't tell him what she's doing. All she can say is, I have this important company. I really like my job, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, come on, Aileen, you don't need to work. Let's get married. And only literally at the end of the story does she find out who he is, you know, because he doesn't. She she kind of wonders, why doesn't he have to go to work every day like everybody else? You know, you run off to your office first thing in the morning. And, and he didn't. And she couldn't figure out why. So, so towards the end of the story, she learns who he is because he had a different name. His last name is Figueroa. Well, the famous person is Roman Romanones. That's a different name, but that's a title. That's a title, not a name. So, the end, towards the end of the story, she figures out who he is, and she's kind of blown away uh, that he's this famous person from this famous family. That's very important. That's very wealthy. Uh, much beloved in Spain. Um, so, anyway, that, that 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 progresses, and then towards the at the very end, when they're about to get married. Eileen um, knows I have to tell him, I have to get this off my chest. So she has to tell him, look, I during the war, you know, when you when you were courting me, I was a Spain for I was a spy for the Americans. And so he she feels like she has to tell him. She does tell him, and lo and behold, he doesn't believe her. He just starts laughing. Oh, come on, Eileen, you are not, you, you are such a liar, you know. And so he just he just shrugs it off. And she's like, Okay, I'm off the hook. I've told him. And so it doesn't come up again because he didn't believe her on that one instance. So she doesn't have to tell him from then on. So pretty cool.
3: Yeah, definitely. It's quite the climax to an incredible life and an incredible period of her life. And as you've already alluded to, she does start writing about this fairly early on. Is it fair to say?
4: Well, she, and as I mentioned earlier, she started with a book called the history of Pasqualette*, And that was, uh, that was published. I'm doing this by memory. It was like 1964, or something like that, and it was about a finca uh, from Luisa's family that she was renovating. And but in the very front of it, at the very beginning of the book, she uh, she actually says that I was a, a a Spain. I mean, I was a spy. I came to here's why I came to Spain. Um, I landed in in um, uh, February of of uh, um 1944 and I uh I went from Lisbon to Madrid, which she did. Uh and she gives her real code name, which was Butch. That was her real code name. That's what's in all the files. And so later when she decides to do the spy books, then you know there <laughs> there no holds are barred. She just they they change her code name. They make it Tiger her uh and, and I found out the reason her publisher did that, her editor did that, because they didn't want the book to be they didn't it didn't sound very glamorous for this beautiful model to have the co- codename of Butch. So they changed it to Tiger. And may, Aileen may have given him that name, because what I found in the files was the Madrid office did have an agent codenamed Tiger. Uh, he was there for a short while. Uh and then he got in some trouble and they had to they had to get him out of Dodge. There was a raid, it's a long story, but they had to get him out of Dodge. So Tiger splits, disappears from Madrid, they sneak him away. Uh well Elaine borrowed the name, so she uses that name for her code name. Um and as I mentioned earlier, the, the framework is true. I mean, she was a spy, she went from Lisbon to Madrid, worked in Madrid, um, and then um, but she she maybe the editor asked her to do this, I don't know, but she made up uh, all, all of the it really exciting, most of the exciting stuff. I and mean, she really was arrested in Malaga, which she covers in her nonfiction article for for the National Archives. Uh, and that so the so the arrest in in, in, in Malaga and uh, Barnaby Conrad, Balen around that that's all true. That really happened. But the murders and you know she had said in her first book that her partner Edmundo Lasalle had murdered a man. Right in front of her, with at the casino in the middle of a crowd, knife to the back. Well, <laughs> it's preposterous. Eh, eh, Manuel Lousado wasn't even in the country until six months later. He he, he doesn't even arrive in um, in in Lisbon until uh, the very end of May, beginning of June. is when he arrives. So Eileen later and she changes all the dates. This is supposed to happen. On uh, New Year's Eve, and she was, and she wasn't there yet either. But she doesn't even, she doesn't even get on the plane to go to uh, Lisbon and Madrid until January twenty-seven. So for whatever reason, she felt at liberty to make up dates and events and things. But Edmundo LaSalle's daughter and brother-in-law were were a little upset that they that she had made up that this person's uh, that. Edmundo LaSalle's daughter was was kind of upset that Elaine said, oh, he murdered somebody, you know, in a casino. Uh, so anyway, so I so in the book, I, I lay out what actually did happen. And someone counted. There's actually 60 pages of end notes. So if you want to go back and look at where did stuff come from, every bit of dialogue comes from a primary source in, in, in a nonfiction work. I believe uh, in a scholarly nonfiction work, you can't make up anything. You can't make up dialogue. So everything is verbatim, either from a report that was filed or from um, something that was in a primary source that, that I felt was trustworthy. So as a lawyer, I've I, I, you know through 25 years of practice, I, I was used to sifting through evidence because lawyers have to decide what's true, what's not true. We have conflicting stories. Lawyers have evidentiary rules that they apply as to what evidence has a higher priority, what's more believable. You, certain things have conflicts of interest. Certain things are hearsay. So I have to work through that hierarchy to figure out what what actually happened, and then of course the the uh, the final verdict. If there's something in the archives, then that's you've you've got it. I mean, you've got a, a written report. So that's my job.
3: Right. Excellent. Well, it, it does sound like Aileen took her fair share of liberties, but also it's it's a re- really remarkable life that is captured in your book, The Princess Spy. Uh, and thank you so much, Larry, for your
0: time in talking to us about Aileen Griffith today.
4: Well, thanks for having me.
0: That was Larry Loftus. The Princess Spy, the true story of World War II spy Aileen Griffith, Countess of Romanones, is published by Atria Books and is out now. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Tune in next on Friday when Anne Seber will be speaking about the Cold War case of Ethel Rosenberg. This week is Medieval Kings and Queens Week on HistoryExtra.com, in which we'll be exploring the lives of famous monarchs, the realities of rulership, and the secrets of surviving on the throne. To find out more, visit HistoryExtra.com and click on the banner on our homepage.